Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Crystal Littlejohn, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Oregon. Professor Littlejohn is an affiliated faculty member in the Global Health Program and the Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies Program. Littlejohn's research examines race, gender, and reproduction. She's particularly interested in investigating how cultural categories shape behavior and intimate relationships and examining the consequences of those behaviors for health outcomes. Her work has been published in the Annual Review of Sex Research, the Journal of Health and Social Behavior, Social Currents, and Gender and Society, among other outlets. Professor Littlejohn's teaching interests lie in family, health, gender, race, and ethnicity, and social inequality. Her monograph, Just Get on the Pill, The Uneven Burden of Reproductive Politics, was published in 2021. Little John joined the University of Oregon in 2019. Thanks, Crystal, so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. So first, tell us a little bit about your background and how you wound up in the academy and uh, interested in social dimensions of reproductive health and fertility. Yeah, so um, I come from a very low income background and I had no idea what it meant to be a professor, what professors did or, or any of any of the like. Um, and when I was in college, I uh, was interested, I obviously uh, was fascinated by sociology uh, and had the good fortune of, of having good mentors uh, that encouraged me to pursue graduate school and told me that I was doing really interesting work, that I had really interesting ideas. Um, and I had just started to become interested in studying uh, social, in studying kind of the sociological dimensions of uh, contraceptive use. Um, and I kind of just took that as a sign that I'm fascinated by the ways that broader ideas about birth control were shaping uh, my peers and experiences in college. Uh, and I, I took I took that and ran with it and went went straight to to graduate school uh, from from college. Um, and kind of the rest is history. I've been studying I've been studying contraceptive use since then. Okay, let's talk about your monograph, Just Get on the Pill, the Uneven Burden of Reproductive Politics. As a way of getting started on that, can you give us a sense of the book's focus and project by explaining your title? Absolutely. So Just Get on the Pill came directly from women in the study, right? So the book is based on narratives from just over 100 women. So we interviewed 103 women that were young uh, folks in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and they were talking with us about their experiences with uh, trying to prevent pregnancy, having sexual uh, interactions with their partners, uh, and really trying to navigate sexual lives as young people uh, who are inundated with a whole host of different messages about what they should be doing. And so when we talked with them about their experiences using birth control, one of the things that I realized kept coming up uh, in the interviews and then in the transcripts when I was doing the data analysis was women were literally saying that they were being told to, to just get on the pill, right? If their partners didn't want to use condoms, it's fine, just get on the pill. Um, if their parents found out that they were having sex, 
we, we need to make sure that you just get on the pill. And so the title comes directly from learning from women about their experiences, trying to prevent pregnancy and having these very gendered messages that suggested that not only was there a particular method that they should be using to prevent pregnancy, which were these prescription birth control methods designed for their bodies, but also that the message was centrally that they should be the ones doing most of the work to prevent pregnancy, if not assuming primary responsibility for preventing pregnancy. And so when it came time to title the book, I just knew that Just Get on the Pill had to be on the title or had to be the title because it was just such an important part of, of women's experiences uh, sharing their stories in, in the interviews. So the, the birth control pill introduced uh, 61, 62 years ago came to be viewed, and, and what you've told us already suggests this, as uh, an, an implement for women's liberation. Mm-hmm. But you've already suggested, begun to suggest ways that your work complicates that view. Will you say a little bit about how your work complicates that understanding of birth control bill? I think the key thing to remember with whether it's the birth control pill or other kinds of technologies is that they can be tools of liberation or they can be tools of oppression. And it really depends on how we're deploying them. And so in the case of the pill, Uh, and other highly effective prescription birth control methods like the IUD, uh, they can absolutely be liberatory methods of birth control. They can absolutely help people lead the kind of lives that they wanna live. They can help them achieve the goals that they wanna achieve. But at the same time, they can also constrain the reproductive autonomy when people aren't being given the choice to use them as they'd like to use them, right? So when people are being told to just get on the pill because a partner doesn't wanna wear a condom, that's not liberation, right? That's not helping them achieve the promise of the pill um, when they're being told that they need to use the pill so their partner can get out of uh, using a condom, not just to prevent pregnancy, but because as part of this woman's bodily autonomy, she wants her partner to use a condom. And so one of the kind of central thrust of my book is getting us to think differently about contraceptive technologies and getting us to interrogate this assumption that these technologies are always beneficial and they're always uh, going to positively affect people's lives. And instead to really ask ourselves under what conditions does do methods like the pill positively shape people's uh, reproductive experiences? And how can we really work together to make sure that people are using these methods within those contexts so they don't actually experience reproductive oppression as so many of the women in the study talked about? So talk to us a little bit about some of the reasons that you found that the burden of birth control has fallen on the people who can get pregnant and not on the people, the other people involved in pregnancy. A key part of this equation was partners feeling like they didn't want to use condoms if they had a partner who was either using a form of prescription birth control or could be on a form of prescription birth control. So in the book, I talk about how partners, parents, peers, and medical providers all socialized women to believe that it was their job to prevent pregnancy and it was their job to carry the burden of preventing pregnancy, whether or not they really wanted to do that, right? So whether or not they wanted their partners to help, it what they were 
taught that they needed to make sure that they did everything they could to prevent pregnancy. So the women would talk about their mothers saying they didn't want pregnant teenage daughters, right? They would talk about partners saying, well, if you're on the pill, then they sh the partner shouldn't have to wear a condom. They would talk about friends telling them, oh, if they're considering uh, having a sexual interaction, then that's the time that they really need to make sure they're starting to get on prescription birth control. And so they really got these messages about using prescription birth control and assuming primary responsibility from so many different dimensions uh, or from so many different aspects um, of their lives. And that's not to say anything about media. That's not to say anything about the different sources, the other different sources that people could get information from. Uh, but in my uh, work, I realized just how important the socialization experience was for teaching women that they should be uh, preventing pregnancy using prescription birth control methods and these methods designed for their bodies um, and how close, how, how much they took, the women took that to Heart, right? They took those messages to heart that in, in order to be good girls, right, in order to be responsible young women, they needed to make sure that they assume primary responsibility for making sure they didn't get pregnant. So I'm struck by the sort of breadth of sources for this argument that it's women's responsibility. You know, you said their their the, their mothers, their peers, their partners, and their doctors. Mm -hmm. Does your work help to explain how this view became so widespread, internalized by women as well as by the medical profession? How do you account for that? Or is that something you dealt with? Yeah, that's something I absolutely had to grapple with even before I started writing this book. I think a key narrative in public health is that unintended pregnancy is a problem and that women uh, especially are held accountable for making sure that they don't become pregnant. Uh, and I think that the message then is that in order to prevent pregnancy, women have to use the best methods to do that, right? And so there's this idea that these methods that have, after the pill came to market, right, we started having all these other methods designed for their bodies. There's the shot, there's the ring, there's the IUD, as we mentioned, or different kind of IUD, uh, as I've talked about before. And I think all of those messages um, really end up infiltrating these different areas of their lives, right? So on the part of, of medical providers, they many of them feel really compelled to try and help their patients prevent pregnancy. Uh, on the part of parents, right, they talk about wanting what's best for their kids. And so they want to make sure they don't get pregnant. And so they end up having this um, message that I think is largely driven uh, by the public health approach that says that preventing unintended pregnancy should be a central goal of, of women's lives. It should be a central uh, goal for our country uh, and the best methods available to do that are methods designed for women's bodies. And what I really try and get us to interrogate with my work is this notion that the effectiveness of methods is itself a social product, right? That's a social consequence. So when we talk about the pill or the IUD or the shot being so effective, the idea is that those methods are so effective because women are committed to using them, right? So a woman commits to taking her pill every day. She commits to getting her shot uh, refilled every time she has to go in to, to get a new shot. She commits to getting an IUD inserted. And so this idea that those methods um, are just the most effective methods as if it's independent of people's uh, commitment to using them, I think really can then obfuscate the ways that condoms can be highly effective 
if people commit to using those as well, right? And so when we talk about condoms being less effective, it's based on uh, the typical use rate, which includes not consistently using condoms, right? And so the notion that they can't be effective, I think is misleading. And if we put as much effort into making sure that couples use condoms as we do into making sure that women uh, and people who get pregnant use their prescription birth control methods, I think that we could actually see a very different landscape than we see. But instead the message ends up being that condoms aren't as effective, men don't like using condoms. And so the solution should be women using prescription birth control. And then they face a lot of, we could call it support, we could call it pressure to do that, right? So when a person says they don't like a condom, we might say, well, you can just use a prescription, that the partner should just use prescription birth control. But when a woman says that she doesn't like prescription birth control, the solution isn't usually, okay, well, you just don't have to use prescription birth control, right? The solution is, well, figure out a time when you can take your pill at night. If it makes you not, if it, if, if the pill makes you not feel nauseated, take the pill at night so that you don't have to deal with nausea during the day. If you don't like the pill, just keep trying different methods until you find one that you can tolerate. And so we end up seeing this really different approach to people's experiences with using prescription birth control versus using condoms. And the, the key thing that I really want us to grapple with is how we can change these outcomes if we change the way that we think about the methods and don't just buy into the assumptions that generally guide our beliefs about how things um, should go and how, how they have been going. It is striking to me that you enumerate four or five different methods that women can use to prevent pregnancy, and you've named one method that men have available. Why has the medical establishment never pursued a hormonal birth control method for men? Or why doesn't that exist? Why, why can't I go get a prescription for birth control that I'm responsible for? There are a number of both social and scientific, scientific factors uh, that shape this uh, experience, right? And so a big part of it has been issues with funding over before uh, prescription contraceptive methods, hormonal contraceptive methods for men. Uh, part of it was that there was a market for women and they were, it's a lucrative market for women. And so there was raising these questions about whether or not you could get men to use uh, new methods if they were to come to market. Would that be a riskier bet since you already had a market for women that you knew existed and that you could just come up with more methods for them to use? And so some of this um, has been uh, really about the political economy of of coming up with with new methods uh, for men. I think some of it is, as I talk about in the book, about social thinking, right? If you don't see it as being a man's responsibility to try and prevent pregnancy, then we're gonna put less, less effort into coming up with new ways for them to do that. And we're gonna keep focusing on new ways uh, for women to do it. And I think there, luckily there, there there are methods that are undergoing, uh, that are in development and undergoing testing. Um, and, and hopefully those will eventually come to market when they do, it will, it will still be years into the future. Um, but there is hope, right. That, that once those markets, the, once those methods come to market, that they can start to hopefully create some change. My personal view is that we change our ideas about about this process, right? It's not enough to just have the technology. The technology won't have the effect that we want it to have if people don't actually shift their understandings of responsibility for, for using contraceptives in the first place. So let's talk a little bit more about that point, that crucial point. So tell us about some of the ideas you have 
to change the way people think about the responsibility for preventing pregnancy? What are some of the strategies that you talk about for making that process more equitable? There are strategies that we can enact in schools, in families, in the medical establishment, right? There are just so many different areas that these gendered ideas about birth control um, have infiltrated. And I think there are a number of different ways that we can then try and create change. So in terms of one of the simplest things that I think we can do is just changing our understandings of how we talk about condoms, for example, right? So not calling the external condom, the male condom and the internal condom, the female condom, right? Because even that language trains people to expect that the a male condom is for a man and it's out of the woman's control to be able to use. And it's not something that she should consider. Uh, and I, so I think one part of it is language, right? One part of it is teaching all people about all available methods of birth control instead of trying to have this gendering of birth control that takes place even when people are first learning about birth control methods, right? So instead of uh, teaching women that all they need to learn about is prescription birth control methods, right? Making it clear to them that condoms are also within their right to use, that it's, uh, that it's their right to have bodily autonomy and to have partners respect their bodily autonomy and to use condoms. And so I think some of this is making sure that at the level of learning about contraception, people have access to all of the information uh, that they possibly can so that they can make uh, choices about how to protect themselves from both pregnancy and disease uh, with, with the best available information. Um, a part of this is changing the ways that we cover different birth control methods, right? So kind of getting back to our conversation about the new methods of, of birth control and development for men, right? Thinking about the ways that we cover tubal ligation uh, via insurance for women, but we don't have those, those same coverages, those same coverage protections for vasectomy for men. And so even at the kind of end of uh, people's reproductive years, they might still choose to use uh, tubal ligation, right? Or kind of commonly referred to ster sterilization, right? A woman might choose to be sterilized uh, simply because that method is, is covered for her and, and vasectomy would it be covered for her partner. And so I think these are just a few of the different things that, that we can do to, to shift the burden uh, for preventing pregnancy. But I think a key part of this process is we have to first recognize that something needs to change so that people can then get on board with making those changes. So as part of your interest in these questions of equitability, you talk about the relationship or the distinction between concepts of reproductive rights on the one hand and reproductive justice on the other hand. So first of all, what, tell us about that distinction. What, what is the difference between reproductive rights approach and a reproductive justice approach? And why is that distinction an important one to make? Absolutely, so reproductive justice is about the right to have a child, not to have a child, and to parent the children that people have. And it's a term that was coined by a group of Black women activists in the 1990s. And it really focuses our attention on the fact that people have a right to bodily autonomy and to be able to control their reproduction, but also that they have a right to be able to have children and to parent those children in safe and healthy environments without fears that something's going to happen to their kids. And so one of the key uh, things with reproductive justice is recognizing that for Black people and marginalized people and Black women and marginalized women in, in particular, um, the courts haven't always been the 
the safest place to to get their needs met, right? And we've seen historically and and contemporarily that courts have oftentimes violated the rights of the very people that they're supposed to be protecting. And so reproductive justice really emerged to recognize that the mainstream reproductive rights movement was overly focused on abortion and wasn't actually reflecting the broader needs uh, that people in, in that people of color uh, and people in marginalized communities had. And so it arose to try and really get people to think about the importance of, of thinking about the spectrum of needs that people have and in grounding those needs in um, a rights framework, a human rights framework that really forces us to think about these um, experiences as a human right that is not necessarily based in the courts, right? That the courts, um, as I mentioned, don't always provide people with the protections that, that they need. And instead we have to advocate for justice, right? So while the courts might fail to do that as individual people and as communities, we can fight for justice so that people uh, can eventually be able to free themselves from, from structures of oppression. So we exist in a moment, as you well know, where uh, the legal right to uh, reproductive choice is highly likely to be significantly restricted within the next year at the federal level. Mm -hmm. um, given the distinction that you just drew between justice uh, and the law, mm -hmm. tell us about some of the strategies that might be used to advance reproductive justice in light of the fact that it's highly likely that the law will restrict the autonomy of women uh, and their rights in, in terms of reproduction? Yeah, I think the a key thing to be mindful of on this front is that reproductive justice organizations have long been doing the hard work of trying to help people have autonomous decision-making when there have been restrictions after, after when there's been restriction after restriction aimed at limiting people's um, rights and, and aimed at limiting their ability uh, to whether that's choose abortion um, or to, to get services for the different, the reality that they have different reproductive needs. Um, and so I think when it comes to the different strategies that are available right now and that people are using, right? One of the big things is trying to figure out how to support different abortion funds, right? Trying to figure out what can be done to support reproductive justice organizations on the ground who are really agitating for change. Uh, even though we know that the courts are in charge of this decision, people really um, trying their best to make sure that their voices are heard and that people recognize that that people in power recognize um, that there will be pushback right against the limiting of people's rights and that people aren't just going to lie down and not vocalize right and not agitate for change when and if their their rights um, are are taken away and so I think from the perspective of reproductive justice the key is that courts have long fought to, take away people's rights and that people on the ground have long fought to try and have those rights respected. And so in my mind, even though we're entering um, a particularly challenging time for reproductive, for people's reproductive rights and, and for having their ability uh, to manage their reproductive freely, 
in terms of, of from a reproductive justice perspective, the, the movement continues, right? The agitating continues um, and the fight continues so that people uh, can one day uh, hopefully, right, be able, be able to, to manage their, their reproductive lives freely and to, to have the reproductive futures that they, that they really hope that they'll be able to have. Are there uh, health care policy changes that could be made that would help advance reproductive justice? I think this is tricky um, in terms of in in light of what's going on uh, with the courts. I think that's that's a that's going to be a, a tricky balance to strike. Um, I think, as we know, the the ways that some of these restrictions are really counting on extra legal mechanisms, right? So relying on neighbors to tell on people, relying on partners to tell on people, right? That is that's a tricky um, line to walk, but I, or that's a that's a tricky thing to get around, which I think is why it's been a particularly um, effective strategy that some of these people have been using. Uh, but I think in terms of the broader things that we can do, I think making sure that people have access to the contraceptive methods that they need, I think making sure that people have um, access to maternal health care, right? So in my mind, these whether or not things change uh, at the in terms of legal access to abortion is doesn't change the fact that we that people need things right now and that we need to keep agitating for them to be able to have those things to meet their needs. And so one thing I do want to point out is that when when there are calls to restrict access to abortion, it oftentimes uh, is kind of accompanied by these calls for uh, people to get on prescription birth control methods. And it obviously with my work, I demonstrate that that's gendered compulsory birth control and not something that we should be doing. So even as I'm saying, that um, in terms of healthcare policies, we need to make it easier for people to access the methods that they need. Uh, I also want to be clear that I'm not suggesting that the solution to abortion restrictions is actually pushing contraceptive access, right? People need access to both abortion and contraception. And so in terms of our healthcare policies, what we should really be doing is trying to make sure that people have access to the full spectrum of, of reproductive health services that they need uh, so they can actually manage their, their experiences uh, in the easiest and, and least um, financially difficult way possible. So in addition to being a scholar of reproductive health and reproductive justice, you are also a teacher. Mm -hmm. Would you tell us about a course that you teach or some of the courses that you teach? Absolutely. So related to this topic, I teach a course on called The Politics of Reproduction, which gets into these questions of reproductive rights and reproductive justice and really trying to get us to think differently about the, the mechanisms that both enable and constrain uh, people's ability to create families in the way that they want to create families uh, or to limit their repro their uh, reproduction when when they don't want to have children. And so it's politics reproduction is one of my favorite classes to teach. Uh, we, we grapple with these very sorts of questions uh, where it, when I taught the last time I taught it was kind of in the thick of of the very things that we've been talking about in this conversation when it comes to what legal access to abortion might look like in, in the near future. Uh, I also teach a course called Sex and Society, uh, which I'm currently teaching right now, uh, which grapples with social thinking about sexuality um, and, and sexual behavior and really takes a sociological perspective, really takes a sociological look um, at things that people 
take for granted as being non-sociological, but that we can see if we use our sociological imagination, there's just so many different ways that we can see the ways that norms are operating, uh, the ways that institutions shape people's experiences. And so in addition to politics, reproduction and sex society, I also teach a course on statistics, uh, which is another one of my favorite courses to teach. So there, I could go on and on. I, I love working with students, uh, but those are some of the, the key courses that I teach that also relate to, to the topic of our conversation today. Uh, they sound like they must be popular courses. So timely <laughs> and interesting. Um, we're almost at the end of our time. So this will be my last question. Your book is now out. It's uh, getting some good attention, but you have some other projects that you're working on. Tell us about one or two of the other uh, scholarly projects that you're engaged with. Yeah, my next big project is looking at risk perceptions among couples. So I'm I'm in the current I'm in the stages of planning uh, a project that will be a, another mixed method study. I'm a mixed methodologist, so doing another mixed method study that uses quantitative and qualitative methods to really start to understand how couples think about risk and how they navigate pregnancy prevention in the context of uncertainty. Right? There tends to be this assumption I think in both the, the, the literature, but also in the popular imagination um, that probability is not part of people's experiences with preventing pregnancy, right? This idea that if people uh, have sexual intercourse without contraception, that they're absolutely going to get pregnant every time they do that is, is part of the popular discourse. And I think that kids learn from a young age, so that's the expectation. But in practice, right, people know that's not actually how it works out. And just like lots of other areas of our lives, people have to navigate uncertainty and they have to think about uh, the kinds of risks associated with pursuing particular uh, pathways over other pathways. And so my next project is really trying to get at how people think about the risk of becoming pregnant uh, from an act of, of unprotected intercourse and how that kind of shapes the decisions that they make. And then how gender dynamics and relationship power dynamics end up being layered on top of those uh, decisions to kind of affect the, ki the different kinds of risk calculations that people make when it comes to using various forms of contraception. So that's the big thing that's occupied most of my time outside of teaching right now. And uh, I'm looking forward to to really being able to dig into that quite soon. Is, well, is uh, that that project sounds fascinating as is your 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 book. Um, we'll have you back when that next project is completed to tell us about that one as well. Thank you, Crystal, for speaking with us today. It's been really great having a conversation with you. That sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. It was fantastic talking with you. I've been speaking with Crystal Littlejohn, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.